G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. Good day, everyone. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast. AFLW now in full swing. Two rounds of that. And we've got a wrap up of the second weekend of that competition for you. Plenty of news going on in the men's competition. Uh, plenty of news going on besides that. Of course, the usual sad and sorry COVID backdrop. Uh, hopefully, in this part of the world, in Melbourne, we're reaching that uh, peak in the Omicron trend uh, transmissions pretty shortly, and we can maybe start getting back to a bit of normality. But it's like we're in a bit of a unofficial lockdown at the moment, but uh, plenty to keep your spirits up. We're down to number 10 in our countdown in vinyl and video. We've got life hacks for you. We've got fantastic footy flashbacks. As I say, a very good uh, afternoon. It's just ticked over afternoon here in Melbourne to my co-host, Mark Fine. How are you going, Finey? Yeah, I'm going well. Weather's, I reckon, pretty good. Families healthy. Can't ask for more than that. No, well, that's about the best you can do these days. It's been, uh, it's quite amazing with the virus at the moment. We've gone from uh, not knowing many people who've had it for a long time to uh, seemingly everyone uh, getting it now. And you and I both been lucky enough to uh, avoid it thus far, but you sort of, you can't help feeling like your number's going to come up sooner or later, can you? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. It's with previous incarnations, it was very much a matter of avoiding it. Now it's sort of not if, but when, and you know, you just keep your fingers crossed that being thrice inoculated will spare us and all like people from the most severe symptoms. Touch wood on that one, of course. AFL clubs being knocked around with their training schedules as well. Speaking of which, we've got some news to get through. Let's do that right now. On Footyology Newsfeed. Well, it's been pretty quiet at uh, AFL headquarters over the Christmas New Year break, but uh, a bit of action to start this new week, finally, with a couple of announcements coming from the uh, football operations people on Monday, and that is about a tightening up on the policing of a couple of rules. Uh, One, they are cracking down on holding the ball and uh, players uh, trying to take advantage of uh, having a prior opportunity and, and, uh, let's say, burrowing away through tackles by putting their heads down. Uh, So they're going to keep a uh, closer watch on that one. And also just on players time-wasting when uh, giving up the football, and that will be uh, policed uh, more strongly with the application of either a free kick or 50-metre penalty. The uh, quote 
from the footy ops people on the crackdown holding the ball was that they would be less lenient towards players who've had prior opportunity and do not immediately and correctly dispose of the football. And uh, finally, I don't think many people, uh, many of us observers or fans would be too upset about that because it has been really frustrating in recent years watching players tackled and swung around often a couple of full revolutions, not getting rid of the ball and still not being penalised for it. So uh, to me, I mean, of course, you've got to see these things in uh, practice, don't you? But to me, theoretically, that sounds like a pretty sensible crackdown. Your thoughts? Well, from my perspective, hopefully this is the moment in time when players who are tackled and have their hands free but professionally sort of um, get caught up in the tackle. In other words, they've been tackled. They might not have had prior opportunity. It could have been an instantaneous tackle. But if you've got both hands on the ball, there's no reason you can't dispose of it. Players are so drilled on not turning the ball over that they would rather hold the ball to themselves, hoping for a ball up, rather than just handballing it clear into a random situation. So that would be a great crackdown. The one thing I would just comment on is normally these the catalyst for change is public opinion after a, a particular rule has been abused in a round of football or in a, in a notable incident or we've had a rash of like type sort of incidents in games or there's been a tendency towards a lot of ball ups and what I'm saying is football is normally the catalyst for change and we are in a downtime for the AFL if not AFLW but this is definitely a rule aimed at the AFL and I don't know did Brad Scott have a nightmare did he go to bed one night and dream a game that never got out of the centre square or something I just find it an interesting time for a interpretation change um yeah no i i think the um it's more a reflection of the thoroughness with which they've they've done their work i mean that's my understanding that there was a lot of uh consultation going on between the clubs and um you know they they wanted to get feedback on what needed changing and and what didn't um and uh yeah i i'd, I'd like to think that's more a result of um, consultation rather than just Brad Scott having a bit of a brain fart or, or a nightmare. But uh, all right, so, so I think with the holding the ball, that's an ever-evolving um, piece of legislation because it's grey, not black and white. It's always open to stricter interpretation and changes or sort of um, different different views. But the second piece of information that they're going to crack down on intentional time delaying, I don't get a sense of that in the modern game. I think the modern football, the current day AFL player is pretty harried and hurried in his need to get the ball back to a player that's been free kicked or any sense of time wasting, I think, is dissipated over recent years and I don't see much of it at all where, where do you see improvements coming from that corner 
Um, no, that's a fair point. I, I certainly hasn't been something that's uh, annoyed me overly. Um, I, I guess it just tends to be a bit of a pushing the envelope scenario, doesn't it? You see, uh, like players that have to give back the ball to an opponent for a free kick or a mark or whatever, they'll just hang on to it that little bit longer and, you know, point to something or other and wait to be given the, the hurry up. Um, I think basically what they're saying now is that they're just, you know, there won't there won't be any uh, any warning at all. It'll just be a, a straight fifty. Um, I mean, the quote from Andrew Dillon on this, he said, uh, uh, "We've worked closely as a football operations and umpiring department to tighten up uh, on the interpretations of existing rules relating to time delay and holding the ball. Uh, the tightening up of these existing rules comes after the game analysis team." identified trends in the way the game is being played and umpired aims to deliver a game that is played and umpired in line with the spirit and intention. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. It's pretty uh, gobbledygook, to be honest. But, uh, yeah, I, I think you make a good point in that what often happens with these scenarios is the envelope gets pushed, there's a crackdown, and then there's a lot of complaints about the officious nature of the crackdown. And then yeah. you get back to a bit of normality. So when we're talking about a crackdown, I mean, it's easy to sort of look at this and say, well, this is how it's going to be for the whole season. But I suspect not. I suspect it's probably just a thing for the start of the season. And it might be, you know, very sort of uh, tightly policed for a week or so, and then there'll be a bit of a, a loosening. And, and we saw that happen with the standrel, didn't we? I mean, early on, you know, we had to get used to it. Um, so that drew attention to it and they were pretty officious with it. But I, I reckon if you had a look at how that was being policed at the end of a season compared to the start, there'd be a lot more leeway given. So, I mean, that's just the push and pull of uh, a game that relies hev uh, so heavily on interpretation of rules rather than the always the black and white nature of them, agreed? You've hit the nail on the head and, of course, where it will become most evident and, and almost farcical will be in the pre-season matches where umpires, of course, with no points at stake and what the AFL claim is enforce or re-educate or prepare players for the upcoming season. Watch some of the free kicks given for time delaying in the pre-season matches. You, you know, you'll be able to measure it in milliseconds. But what strikes me is interesting in the discussion of time delaying Rowan and this is something that I'm borrowing from the Rowan Connolly hymn book is that the greatest time delayers in the game of football are the umpires themselves and the time it takes them to throw the ball up around the ground obviously impacted upon by having to get nominees for Ruckman it's it's almost like the Academy Awards and the nominees are you know it's that's where your time delay occurs yeah, well, there's certainly a lot of dead time in, in games. And, uh, well, my hobby horse on that one was we had people pushing for shorter games and um, they were talking about the duration a game takes. Well, you could have a shorter duration and still have the same length games by getting rid of a lot of that dead time. And uh, I'm happy to go into that some other time when that inevitably comes up um, uh, courtesy of a TV executive or someone who wants to uh, get the broadcast away so that my kitchen rules can get on earlier or, you know, the uh, those priorities they usually 
refer to when they bring up a harebrained idea like that. Anyway, they are the rule interpretation changes thus far. Let's see how they pan out. Time, though, now to talk about AFLW round two. And uh, again, Fanny, uh, I feel sorry for the women. They've had to do it tough with COVID, of course, memorably um, season before last, the entire season being abandoned during a final series when uh, COVID ramped up. Well, uh, it's ramping up again. And uh, again, the women are paying the price. And that last weekend was by the the abandonment of uh, two games, the rescheduling of uh, uh, the fixture and uh, Brisbane and the uh, Western Bulldogs, both basically being put on ice for this weekend and just six games. Um, so hopefully their clash can be played at some stage. But a bit of uh, flexibility and agility being shown again in terms of scheduling and coming up with, uh, well, a different fixture to what was planned. In this case, it was Carlton playing Geelong down at Geelong. But let's start at the top. Melbourne, Richmond on uh, Friday evening at Punt Road. High-quality game, this one, finally. Uh, the Demons, 16-point winners in the end, 8-6-54, defeating Richmond, 6-2-38. Melbourne, of course, one of the flag favourites and just a bit of extra class. But uh, Richmond certainly looking like a big improver. They got off to a good start. They got some wonderful players. Jeez, Monique Conti kicked a fantastic goal. In the final quarter, Katie Brennan, too, another star of the game. She bobbed up with a couple. Um, but uh, Melbourne, uh, plenty of stars in that lineup, too. Alyssa Bannon, um, a fantastic running goal she kicked uh, in Melbourne's big burst in that game. Five goals in the second quarter. They are looking like they're going to be pretty hard to beat uh, this season. Finally, what did you make of this one? Yeah, I said after round one that they were my tip. When a, an AFLW team kicks five goals straight in a quarter, you know that they're, they're humming, especially when the team they're playing are no easy beats and led them to most contests in the first quarter. That's a pretty impressive response. And the Demons had a great second quarter, didn't they? And I'll tell you what, that you look for consistency in footballers. I'm trying to get a comparison in the male game, I might even look at their own club, Melbourne, and say that Paxman has, not the way she plays, but has the Clayton Oliver-like quality of being an absolute sure bet. She is a, I think she is the, from the football I've seen, the most consistently um, solid footballer in that club. Not the most brilliant, but gee, she's consistent. And she's tough as well. Well, she had a comparatively uh, down day in, in the first game, but certainly bounced back pretty hard in this one. 22 disposals she had by the finish and certainly a cornerstone of that Melbourne side. Uh, let's move to Saturday. Collingwood, uh, very efficient winners over uh, disappointing St Kilda. 6-5-41, the Pies defeating the Saints 2-2-14. And... Collingwood for a second week in a row, uh, the beneficiary of some ill discipline by their opponents. Uh, there was a, a 50 metre penalty conceded for the stand rule, um, and then a, uh, a punch through for a rush behind from outside 
the goal square, which uh, conceded a uh, free kick from point blank range to the Pies. Even the commentators didn't pick up on that one, which was quite funny. Uh, but that gave the Pies a flying start and uh, never looked back, really. And uh, that was alongside Nick Dalsando, of course, and Kilda's new coach being forced to isolate, not uh, being on the park because of COVID health protocols. But Collingwood, uh, they're going to be at the pointy end of a season too, you feel, even without Bree Davey, who uh, tragically uh, her season came to an end in round one. But plenty of ball-winning midfielders in that Collingwood lineup. Britt Benici, particularly impressive uh, in this game with 26 disposals. Jamie Lambert picked up 25 for the Pies. And uh, Irish woman Ailing Sheridan uh, kicking two goals for Collingwood. Uh, they're pretty good at Victoria Park too, Fanny. And a nice moment too, just as an aside, Nicky Winmar uh, turning up at Victoria Park and he was presented with the Indigenous round jumper that St Kilda wore. And of course, uh, a flashback there to his famous raising of the jumper and defiant gesture in 1993 so that was a good moment uh not many of them for the Saints side yeah he actually designed that jumper so it was a fitting venue for that jumper to be worn good stuff uh Chioki was not playing for the Pies she's a star they're a good team St Kilda uh, look you know they were a, a sort of bottom two bottom four team heading into the season without losing, uh, you know, their, their two best players, one through injury, one through choosing not to get vaccinated, Patrikios and Smith, and they just don't have the depth. They showed a bit of character, though, because I think the second half scores were level. So there was a bit of character shown, but for a long time there was a big question as to whether the Saints would kick a goal it took them into the last quarter to try post their first. So a long season for the Saints. As for the Pies, I don't know if they can go pointy end without Bree. That's their star recruit and a star player. And um, they are they are a team that is certainly the beneficiary of sort of being part of the competition from day one and developing into a, a team. And they are a real team, aren't they? All right, let's head down the highway to that uh, hastily rescheduled game between the Blues and the Cats. The Cats, of course, really struggled last year, only uh, managed to win in the very last game of the season. Haven't got one now either, but they've been competitive in uh, both games so far. A loss in round one to North Melbourne and uh, a loss to the Blues here. But Kept the Blues on us. The final scores, Carlton 4-7-31, defeating Geelong 2-5-17. This game affectionately known as the Prasparcus Cup with sisters Maddie and Georgie facing off. Maddie, of course, for the Blues and Georgie um, debuting this season for Geelong and winning the Rising Star Award in her very first game. Uh, Maddie probably the uh, more impressive of the pair this week. Uh, she ended up with the most touches on the ground, actually, 29 possessions. So she was in red-hot form for the Cats. Rebecca Webster, Amy McDonald leading the way there. Georgie Prasparkas, 15, so another promising performance from her. Uh, uh, 
a scrappy game without uh, much scoring here, but the Blues just bobbed up at the important stages. Ended up winning by 14 points. They're a fair bit away from where they were um, when they made that grand final against Adelaide back in 2019. That is, uh, well, three years ago now, isn't it? And Daniel Harford, of course, in charge of the Blues with some different personnel, but uh, some promise there. And uh, they're certainly going to be in the mixer of finals berth, you'd think. Yeah, they'll be they'll be thereabouts. You know, it's a bit of a, a sort of a salient warning for the teams that are joining the competition next year, the Bombers, the Hawks, Sydney and Port, because these teams that were not foundation club members, you've got to realise with only sort of 10 games a season, eight games a season, you've really got to play two or three seasons before you've played what would be the equivalent of a full season of AFL football. And um, Geelong is just another side that when I watch them play, they look like junior partners. And it's just going to take a couple more years. So how do I even up that playing field? Have longer seasons, Rowan? Well, yeah, you think that'll happen at some stage, but I guess um, baby steps in the, uh, well, still infancy of this competition. What's this season six now, isn't it? Yeah, I think, um, I think by the way, this round brought up, was it this round brought up the millionth fan through the gates for AFLW? That's a heck of an achievement. I wasn't aware of that. No, that is a, yeah. that is a landmark. All right, uh, let's turn to Sunday. Now, a couple of games... Uh, played in unusual locations, I guess, because of the uh, COVID protocols involving the two WA teams, both of whom ended up playing at Witten Oval. And the first of those was West Coast, who took on Gold Coast. Gold Coast in their second season, winless last year. Well, they broke the ice in this game. And finally, I've got to say, I've watched a lot of women's football in this competition, this is the most incredible finish to a game I've ever seen because it came from absolutely nowhere. This is quite a, a scrappy game until last quarter. It was a couple of goals each. Uh, West Coast seemed to achieve the winning break with three quick goals at the start of the last quarter and uh, the third of them to Maddie Collier gave them a 16-point lead and you thought, okay, well, that is that. Only about seven minutes left. The Suns promptly rattled off five unanswered goals to win this game by seven points. It was unbelievable. Um, great performance from Charlie Rowbottom, uh, 17 possessions, 12 tackles. Uh, Ellie Hampson, terrific for the Suns. And uh, the forwards, Kate Sermon, uh, Tara Bahana, were unstoppable. In the end, Sermon uh, pounced on the crumbs to snap a couple of uh, goals. Bahana bobbed up with three. And um, bang, Bob's your uncle. It was an incredible turnaround. And uh, they were absolutely jubilant at the end of this game, the Suns. And rightly so. Uh, it was an amazing effort for the Eagles. Dana Hooker, uh, she's a bit of a stalwart for West Coast. 19 touches for her. Emma Swanson, 18 disposals. Michaela Bowen. Uh, had a dozen and kicked a goal. But uh, great stuff by Gold Coast, Fonny. Yeah, that really is a fantastic result. It's a game that was played at a neutral venue. And I just get a sense that a team like the Gold Coast, they could really help the impetus of the entire organisation 
if they can become a winning side. Um, sort of the interest in football on the Gold Coast could be piqued by the AFLW team. You know, with with a win like that and the exuberance and you, you hope that they can continue on an upward trajectory. I'm not 100% sold on the men's team, but I like the spirit of the AFLW team. Oh, it was a fantastic performance. And yeah, and I think that's that's a pretty good point. All right, let's head to Adelaide on Sunday and uh, the Crows, well, they're a... Uh, a perennial in this competition, aren't they? And looking really, really good once again. They defeated North Melbourne by 13 points, 5-7-37 to the Roos, 3-6-24. Stars all over the park, uh, none bigger than Ash Woodland. Eight goals so far from the two games, another four for her up forward. And uh, Anne Hatchard, terrific for Adelaide, ended up with 29 disposals. Danielle Ponta. Uh, Stevie Lee Thompson, who's uh, good in attack, in defence. Erin um, Phillips, of course, another perennial. Gee, they've got some great players all over the park. North have got some uh, good players too, Fanny. And this was played in a fair bit of heat, this game out at Norwood. But Ash Riddell, really impressive for North. She ended up with 27 disposals. Uh, Emma Carney coming back into the team after having the miss with COVID protocols. She made a difference. And... Jasmine Garner, really good too. She's a, a real tough player. They got within seven points uh, quite late in the piece uh, in this game, the Roos, before Woodland's last goal put the match out of reach. But Adelaide, we know, are going to be right up there. I think North Melbourne capable of being right up there too. Well, North Melbourne is the one team that counters the argument that you need time in the competition as a team to be a force because, of course, they hit the ground running as soon as they joined the AFLW. And I think you named part of the reason why. I think Garner's a star. The one thing about Adelaide, I wonder whether their seemingly endless supply of ready-made footballers will be tempered when Port Adelaide joined the competition. But just instinctively, you know that Adelaide... I would say that Adelaide is sort of the competition's first powerhouse, genuine from day one, and you just look at the fixture and you and you sort of say, well, if you follow a team, you say, well, that's a bridge too far. That they are, I think they're. Is that fair to say that they are the competition at this stage? They are the AFLW sort of the high benchmark. Oh, absolutely. I mean, well, they've won two flags for starters and been in three grand finals, so. Um... Absolutely, the the scores on the board. Um, speaking of which, though, uh, this round finished off with uh, well, you wouldn't call them a powerhouse, but Fremantle have been very solid in the AFLW, and of course, really unlucky a couple of years ago to be undefeated and yet not get any reward for it when that twenty twenty season was abruptly uh, called off in the midst of a final series, which they were doing pretty well in, but. They're looking like another big contender and they had a very comfortable win over GWS, 7-10-52 to the Giants, 2-8-20. Ebony Antonio uh, got them going. Gemma Houghton, gee, she's a powerhouse up forward. Um, She ended up with a couple of goals and uh, the Dockers in the second term um, really ramped up the pressure and four goals put them 25 points up at halftime. And uh, I don't think the Giants were 
ever coming back from there, particularly one on the halftime siren. Hayley Miller, uh, terrific leader for Freo with 19 disposals. For the Giants, well, same old there. Alicia Reva, what a fantastic stalwart of the game Alicia is. Uh, I think I've pointed this out a number of times. My daughter's first um, coach, as a matter of fact, finding, and she's uh, a terrific ambassador for the game. But, boy, she is consistent. And Elise Parker as well, uh, 26 disposals for Alicia Reva and 19 for Elise Parker, but not enough contributors to the Giants. Uh, they're going to struggle again, you fear. And uh, the Dockers, well, they're going to contend again, you think. Rowan, I'll tell you this, that sceptics, AFLW sceptics, if they are willing to watch a game of AFLW, should be pointed in the direction of a Fremantle game. They're great to watch, especially when I think they're the best running team in the competition. I love their ball movement and they've got a really capable forward line and uh, look it's, it hasn't it always been thus you know in the men's game in all games you, you take two bottom teams it's not going to be a pretty game of football no i suggest anybody that watched St Kilda in the 80s would have thought AFL is crap but you know you can watch games of AFLW that don't hit the great heights you watch a game between the Dockers Melbourne Adelaide Collingwood I'd put Richmond in there as well um, now because I've seen them a couple of times. You're going to enjoy the game of football. You'll love watching Fremantle play. They are great to watch. Yeah, and no, I agree. I, and I, I think that's a good call on those other teams too. There's a lot of very watchable sides in AFLW, so we shouldn't have to keep saying it uh, this far down the track. But uh, if you are a sceptic, uh, at least do them the courtesy of uh, watching a few games because there is some really good footy being played now and the improvement is pretty palpable. Okay, that is round two. Hopefully back to a full seven-game round in round three. Time for us to move on, though, and it's vinyl and video, and the countdown continues. Vinyl and video. Pressing rewind on our favourite music, movies and TV. Oh, it's getting exciting. We're down to the top 10 now, Finey. We've knocked over the first half of this countdown and the top 10, our top 10 movies and songs of all time. And boy, some big names this week to talk about. Uh, let's start with the movies. I'm going to go first. And, well, some great, uh, great uh, pleasures of mine being combined here, Finey. Music for one, comedy for another one. And this is a really important film because it really was the uh, launching of a whole genre. Um, the film I'm talking about is This Is Spinal Tap, uh, made in 1984, directed by Rob Reiner. Um, I think his directorial debut. And uh, if you're wondering, what am I talking about? This is the launch of the mockumentary, uh, the sort of reverential uh, fly-on-the-wall documentary, but done as a piss take and done so, so well. I'll never forget, I got, uh, I was lucky enough to go to the preview of this film, I think in the, the old Longford cinema in uh, Turak, um, and the entire audience 
uh, just spent the entire film absolutely pissing themselves. It is such a funny film, even after repeated viewings. Of course, for those handful of people that aren't familiar with it, it is the story of a veteran English heavy metal band and a tour of the US, which goes spectacularly pear-shaped. Um, goes pear-shaped for a number of reasons. Infighting. Um, there's a problem with the cover of the album because the distributors uh, renege on releasing that with a what is seen as a particularly sexist cover. Um, uh, what else happens? We, we visit the uh, members of the band and uh, their various quirks along the journey. Um, Christopher Guest plays Nigel Tufnell, the rather dim-witted lead guitarist. Michael McKean uh, plays David St. Hubbins, his partner in crime. And Harry Shearer, of course, the uh, voice of The Simpsons, plays bass player Derek Smalls. There's a procession of drummers across the journey uh, who all seem to meet sticky ends. Uh, some spontaneously combust, others choke on vomit, someone else's vomit. Yes, I've just given away one of the key gags in this film, of course, that and uh, Nigel Tufnell's, Tufnell's famous quote about the amps that go up to 11. Uh, what else goes wrong? They get lost on their way to the stage in a gig in Cleveland. Uh, you do hear them performing some of their great uh, songs, finding like uh, Big Bottom, Sex Farm, Working on a Sex Farm, Poking Your Hay, and uh, Big, <laughs> Big Bottom, Talking About Mud Flaps, My Girl's Got Them. Uh, I just, like, I practically know the whole thing off my heart, as do most music fans, but it's just so brilliantly done and an absolute piss take. I, I think at the expense of the likes of, Led Zeppelin and, uh, well, you know, Deep Purple and some of those English bands that had become a bit ponderous and a bit pretentious by yeah, the... I, I always thought it was Pink Floyd. Yeah, yeah possibly. Uh, certainly a, a, a dig at uh, English music that had got a bit, uh, uh, what's the word, a bit too self-reverential. Um, too far, too up, too far up its own up, back there, up, up their own ass. Yes, correct. Uh, but a very, very funny movie. I take it you've seen this one. I didn't bother love it. Absolutely. Look, I love it. I can see why you adore it because music is such a big part of your life, and there would be familiar moments there through your late brother and just through your your deep understanding of of how bands become. They go all the way from you know all the right reasons to, you know, they become a parody of themselves. The pretentious gits that they sang, that they railed against, they become. So it's it's fantastic that that movie is able to capture that in a very funny way. I think the amp up to 11 is sort of modern pop culture gold, isn't it? It's 24 karat famous. Yes. <laughs> and, well... And the punchline with it, where uh, where Rob Reiner is uh, pointing out to him, well, why don't you make just ten yeah, louder, yeah. make that the top number? And there's a recognised <laughs> silence, and Nigel replies, well, "These ones go to 11. <laughs> um, the maximum volume on this is louder because it's a higher number. <laughs> I tell you what, I did a I, I did an absolute double take a while back too, when I was watching uh, Better Call Saul. And uh, I got through almost the entire series before I realised 
one of the main characters in Better Call Saul was Davidson Hubbins from Spinal Tap. And yeah, wow, he's a seriously good actor, Michael McCune, isn't he? Um, yeah, fantastic performance. Yeah, great movie. Uh, if you haven't, if you if you love music and uh, love rock music, and you haven't seen this, what are you doing? Hurry up and see it because I guarantee you will laugh your head off. That is my number ten movie. This is Spinal Tap from 1984. What's yours, Finey? Well, did I play AFL football in the early 2000s? I might have, because this is the go-to favourite movie for every player that was given one of those sort of um, pen-pick questionnaires in the early 2000s. Favorite well, can I movie? have a guess? Can I have a guess? Yep. I, I would have said, uh, well, I would have thought a contender for that title would be Caddyshack. No, this is sort of the next generation of players. Ken oh, Shack's right. more, more my age. This is this is people ten years younger than me. Okay, well, what is it? The Shawshank Redemption. Ah, oh, great movie. A great movie. You're right, though. Yep. Every footballer, the Shawshank Redemption. I used to think that it was part of pre-season training at most clubs. Um, <laughs> well, can I can I just tell you quickly a slightly self-indulgent anecdote yep. to that end to pro, to back that up. Um, and uh, this will tell you when this film was made, Finey, uh, yes. because I've always remembered this. In 1994, uh, I got invited along with a posse of media people and AFL people and uh, footy types over to Perth for the official launch of the Fremantle Football Club when their admission was announced. This is about halfway through 1994. Um, on the way back, we uh, watched the Shawshank Redemption and something happened. There was there was some interruption, a bit of turbulence or something. And anyway, as we approached Tullamarine, the film was still going. We were actually successful in convincing the pilot to do a couple of extra taxis of the Tullamarine airport so he could see the end of the film. I kid you not. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Well, that just says it all. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I mean, that, that almost is... That's believable because it happened, but it, it's like the a story non-apocryphal to back up my theory that this is a footballer's movie. Oh, you've never seen a group of football people so quiet uh, <laughs> and transfixed yeah. by a film for yeah. Anyway, yeah. do go on. All right. So once again, not for the first time in my top 20, for the third time after Stand By Me and The Green Mile, this is an adaptation of a story by Stephen King. Now, it's a very interesting story behind how this got to the movies. Frank Darabont, the director, took up an offer a year or two earlier by Stephen, Stephen King, very magnanimously, wanted to help budding directors get their start in the movies by offering them the rights to films from his not his main books, but his novellas and short stories, for $1. Now, Darabont took up the offer and made a little-known movie, something about the, the, the line of a woman or something. I'm not quite, I can't remember the title. Um, but it struck up a friendship between the two. And then he came back to him and said, I'll give you $5,000 for the rights of your short story. The name of the short story was actually Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. And it's one of the cheapest buyers of all time in movie history, isn't it? $5,000 for that. Yeah. He, he 
got backing, made the movie. Now, remember last week we spoke about One Flew Over, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Now, the only thing that, that, the only award that One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest didn't win was the Coleman Medal. I mean, it, it, that movie won everything, didn't it? Yeah. Do you want to know what awards the Shawshank Redemption won? I do. Japanese Academy Award for Best Foreign Film. That is all. Is that right? Yeah. It, it, timing's everything in life, isn't it, Rowan? It's a lot. Um, 1994 was a pretty good year for movies. And unfortunately, uh, when it came to the awards time, it came up against Forrest Gump. And um, I think there were a couple of other big movies, but, you know, Forrest Gump sort of swept the pool. And it just didn't, it wasn't critically acclaimed. It didn't even do well in the box office because of those other big movies. The good news is that in syndication and, and in all the other ways you can make money from a movie, it's made hundreds of millions of dollars. So it stars Tim Robbins as Andy Dufresne. And what do you think of Tim Robbins as an actor? I think when some of his roles have been brilliant, I think he was brilliant in this. What, yeah, he's not yeah. highly rated. Yeah, no, love it. Uh, I think of Tim Robbins, I think of this, and I think probably of Bull Durham. They'd be the two yeah, movies yeah. I think of. But he's great in this. But this certainly, I don't know, I, I feel like Morgan Freeman sort of defined the role of the um, uh, kind-hearted and wise old uh, black guy in this film, didn't he? Don't you think? Yeah, 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 yeah. The, the sort of the um, long-serving lifer. The man who knew his way around the prison. It also cast forever the sort of comedian's impersonation and everybody's take on the great Morgan Freeman as narrator as well as actor. Yeah. Because his narration in this movie is memorable. I'm not going to give away the story. For those who haven't seen it, the three of you still out there, I'll keep it to the basic bones of a man is sent to prison, Andy Dufresne, for murdering his wife. He proclaims his innocence, but that falls on deaf ears in the deep south, and he's subject to the whims of a very um, corrupt warden, chief warden, Samuel Norton, brilliantly played by Bob Gunton. The rest of the cast is not famous, but a beautiful ensemble cast of actors, and the warden is particularly good. Um, there's... Uh, you know, justice could only be served by the man himself, Andy Dufresne, and what happens then is brilliant and and all set in that really gritty sort of jailhouse drama. When well done, I like a good jailhouse movie. You know, it takes you to a world where, you know, God forbid you ever end up, but it fascinates us all, doesn't it, prison, really? Well, it's uh, certainly a lot to choose from in that genre. <laughs> just, yeah, yeah, there is. There is. But this is right up there. Uh, this is considered sort of the, the, you know, I mean, Green Mile was a prison movie. I remember as a younger person loving Brubaker, starring Robert Redford. That was a prison movie mm -hmm. called Cool Hand Luke. Um, we look at, we peer into the world of prisons. Obviously, Hollywood's version isn't quite the real deal, but there's a lot of documentaries now. It is an amazing part of the human cycle, the you know, humans on Earth. That do do, uh, do war films count in that? Uh, Prisoner of War, do they, do they count as... No, I think that's a bit different. That's I a think, separate genre? 
because okay. they're not criminals, you know, they're, they're sort of heroes in prison. But, you know, we have to weigh up. These prison movies often have an innocent party, but, you know, criminals that are, are at times within the system, we, we can see people forgive their crimes and they come across as good or bad. So in this movie, there are goodies and baddies, but the goodies, you know, the main goodie in the movie is Morgan Freeman's character and he was a murderer. Yeah. You know, Red was a murderer. That That is an interesting sort of um, uh, paradox that we have when we watch these movies. But it, look, it's a great movie, great acting. I, I, I shan't give away the um, the clever way that it's it, it builds to a it builds to a a, a sort of a, um, a exciting and brilliant finale that is kept secret. It's got to be kept secret from the authorities, but it's also pretty much kept secret from the viewers. So it's good. All right, and I like your use of the word shan't there again because it reminds me of another line out of This Is Spinal Tap where <laughs> right, right at the end, David St. Hubbins and Nigel Tufnell have a spectacular bust-up and uh, uh, Marty DeBerge, the director, interviews David St. Hubbins about what's happened and <laughs> his line is, we shan't work together again. You know um, what, I, I have a feeling that that was sort of swimming because that is not a word I normally use. And I think I sort of, while you were talking about Spinal Tap, you took me back to the movie. And I've got a feeling, you know, subliminally, that's why I, sp- you know, I, I sort of spat it out. Spooky. All right, we'll just pretend I'm the uh, the kind-hearted uh, murderer with a heart of gold doing the narration here. And yep. we move on to our top 10 songs, or number 10 in our favourite song list. And uh, finally, I'm going local now, I've got a few things to say about this song. This band um, never really got as big as they should have, I think. And they had a couple of, uh, well, the songs of theirs still played pretty regularly, about 35 years on. But um, as good as those songs are, and you'll know uh, which songs I'm talking about when you find out who the band is, this was an earlier single of theirs. In fact, it was their second single. I love this band, Finey. I got onto this band probably a year before they became or they released any records actually and and sort of became reasonably well known and they were fantastic live and they were always a bit rockier live uh, than necessarily you thought on record if people are wondering oh that's a bit uh, wimpier than your usual stuff Connolly Um, well we love this band me and my mates we saw them 30 odd times I reckon uh, terrific live. This was their second single. This is one of the most anthemic sounding records I've ever heard. And I rate it so highly and it was so great live. And it's got that chanty quality that this band specialized in. I'm talking about Boom Crash Opera. And the song is Hands Up in the Air. Let's have a listen.
kudos to you, Rowan. First of all, I'm really pleased to hear Boom Crash Opera again because I think they were, yes, I might maybe would say unfulfilled. You know, the stories do circulate about their lead singer. Um, Dale Ryder. Yeah. Being a they also, full they, of, well, they also... A little, a little full of himself, apparently. Yeah, also uh, Richard Pleasance, the bass player, had an issue with uh, tinnitus, which um, restricted them too, I think. But, uh, of course, their first single was Great Wall. This was the follow-up. Yeah. And uh, they were big on those chanty choruses. And, of course, this one, no, 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 no. But it's just, I don't know, it's so anthemic. And I, I love the I love the sound. They just had a great sound. Their keyboards, so many keyboards in the mid-'80s were really tinny and cheesy sounding. But I always thought their keyboards sounded great. Um, anyway, uh, great song. And uh, I don't know, it, I remember tearing my hair out about the fact that it wasn't being played enough on uh, Melbourne radio. I just I remember when it came out thinking this is going to be an absolutely massive hit. Yeah, yeah. Because I thought I had all the elements required, but who can who can uh, work out what goes through the head of radio programmers? I, I honestly can't. I just thought if ever a song is going to be played ad nauseum and be huge, it's this one. And I reckon if it had been played more on radio, it probably would have been. Anyway, I love well, it. I, I, just listening to that grab and now remembering the song in full. Has it been used by any, by the AFL, by any, you know, sports bodies in Australia to promote their season? It's no, perfect. it is. I agree. Yes, good spot. Absolutely. And there's still time, people. But no, I think you're right. It, it is. It's just got that real anthemic quality about it and really. Uh, and the film clip's so easy, you know, sort of cele- the celebrations of sports people his hands up in the air often. Yeah, yeah, nah, spot on. All right, uh, what's your number 10? Okay, a little self-indulgent. Is it self-indulgent? Yeah, I guess so. Um, this was, this is um, Natalie and my song. Now, it's a song we did that painful wedding dance to. Did you go through that when you were married? Uh, I had a very small wedding, actually, in my parents' lounge room. <laughs> so it wasn't really room, no. Yeah, you know, we we took the free lesson at Arthur Murray. <laughs> not, not that it was Arthur, Murray. yeah. So I can't remember where we had our one dance lesson. But um, yeah, we took. <laughs> they all had one free lesson. It's unusually romantic of you, finding. I'm I'm impressed. But the song, the I really love this song. It's 1972. Al Green made famous in. Uh, Pulp Fiction, Let's Stay Together. So let's have a listen. Ah, yes, it's classic, isn't it? I was thinking as I was listening to this version of it, though, and uh, this is the original studio version, this surely is one of the most covered songs in music history. I've heard that many different people, that many versions of it. Um, I reckon there's probably better versions than this one, to be honest. But really? Yeah. Oh, no. No, this is the one. 
Yeah, okay. Well, it's, uh, so well, you got to tell us now, why is this your song, Finey? Your, oh, we, 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 because we got married around the time of Pulp Fiction and, um, you know, it was a big movie. It was sort of, it was a bit of a, a cultural... Um, Touchstone. Thing. Yeah, correct. That's exactly what I was looking for. And we enjoyed the movie. We enjoyed that song. And the sentiment in that song has served us well. I let a private matter out now, but I'm happy to sort of mention it. Look, Natalie and I are not far away from celebrating our 27th wedding anniversary. Very um, nice. But that doesn't mean we've been together for married for 27 years. Well, we've been together. We've been married for 27 years. And yeah, um, in that time, we had a period apart, not long just over a year, um, but, you know, we both, circumstances drove us apart at that point in time, but there was still deep love that we shared for each other. And that song, the, the actual words in that song, the sentiment in that song became important for both of us. And, you know, and I think it didn't drive us back together, but it, when we heard it, separately and then together it was hard not to shed you know to start to be very emotional so it's been a song that has served us very very well that's very sweet finding that's a, a nice little anecdote um all right so there it is number 10 fight for finding let's stay together by al green i've gone boom crash opera hands up in the air in our movies this is spinal tap was my number 10 and Finey's, of course, a uh, classic of, uh, well, classic of the modern uh, times and the football community, particularly the Shawshank Redemption. All right. We were pretty mainstream this week, weren't yeah, we? Yeah, pretty mainstream, which will be popular with the punters, I reckon. Uh, not uh, quite as eclectic as we often are. All right, uh, time now for some, oh, we've been a bit philosophical already, but time now for. Uh, a bit more ruminating on life. Life Hacks. Building a better world. Uh, well, as you'd expect, Finey, I'm, I'm uh, well, you are too, but we uh, keep an eye on current events very closely. And, uh, well, you have to be on Mars to have escaped the, um, the prevailing story of the last, oh, God, I don't know how long now, it feels like months, but the... Novak Djokovic, um, uh, visa, vax, will he, won't he, court, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know where I'm going with this. Um, God, it dragged on forever. But for me, and I think for, uh, well, I'd hope it was more, but maybe not. Maybe that's my point. Um, what really was thrown into stark contrast was, the attention that gets focused on a, uh, a sporting star and his travails, which, uh, let's be honest, were in the whole scheme of things relatively minor, and that was having to stay in a, a pretty grotty hotel for a night or two, up against uh, some other occupants of that same hotel, uh, the Park Hotel in Melbourne. And uh, we're talking there about 25 refugees and seven asylum seekers who have been held in that same hotel forever 
without even the slightest prospect of having their uh, matters attended to, to the point where we became aware during this whole saga, Finey, of, uh, well, a couple of young men, um, one in particular, uh, Mehdi Ali, um, who fled Iran as a child aged 15, arrived in Australia via boat in 2013, has been in detention ever since. He is now 24 years old. He's spent nine birthdays in detention, either in uh, uh, inside the country or offshore processing centres, and most recently in this pretty inadequate hotel. And um, I did see some reports about how food they'd been served was maggot infested and uh, they're not allowed out. Um, they're basically prisoners and you might say in a hotel, but uh, we're not talking five-star hotel here by any stretch. And uh, just coincidentally, because that's where Djokovic was taken, it happened to focus, sadly, very briefly, attention on them. And um, what was interesting, though, Fanny, is that the world media seemed to really latch onto this. I saw uh, Mehdi uh, interviewed on the BBC. I saw plenty of overseas media talking about this, um, this incredible oversight by our authorities. Uh, but there was also this sort of acknowledgement here that while there might be that attention, as soon as the uh, Novak caravan moved off, we'd just all forget it about about it again and that's exactly what's happened so these poor asylum seekers and refugees are left to languish again at the hands of this bureaucratic uh, apathy i think and uh, it doesn't help when the prime minister himself is basically spreading misinformation about them and he said in the media yesterday he claimed they'd not been recognized as refugees and the vast majority of them have what is going on in this country where people can be effectively detained for nine years, not having committed any criminal act, trying to seek asylum from torturous regimes? What happened to our boundless planes to share, Finey? And uh, what happened to our compassion? And what happened to our attention spans? And, and why do we only give a stuff about someone being in a poor hotel when it's a tennis star and not these poor bastards who have spent half their lives, in some cases, trying to escape murder and totalitarianism and come to a country where uh, they hope to be accepted and welcomed with open arms and in, instead get treated like this. It's just, it's embarrassing. Horrible. It really is horrible. It's, I'm glad that you've mentioned it. it. It's a blight on our nation. It's a blight on the notion of Australians giving everybody a fair go of a generous country with, you know, boundless land to share. These aren't criminals. It's, it's horrible. It, it's very, it's sad. It's unacceptable. But the worst thing about it is, is exactly what you said. It's accepted by us, that is Australians, without enough public sentiment against it to have something happen. It, you know, we all we all need to hang our heads on this one, Robert. Well, it's sort of like too many things in the political sphere now. It's like lying and unaccountability and 
pork barreling. And there's sort of, a, I guess, a recognition by governments themselves now that if you perpetuate a horror for long enough, eventually people stop railing against it or they move on to something else. And that's what they count on. And yeah, it is. I mean, it, it, it demeans us as a country. Uh, it should be, well, it is, it's made us an international embarrassment and a bit of a, a pariah, really. And we have to care more about that, how we're uh, the contempt in which we're held by people beyond their shores. Um, yeah, pretty embarrassing and, and certainly hope, uh, well, I hope that uh, if there's a change of government at the next election, that uh, the incoming government actually does something about it as well, because uh, they're not exactly without blame in some of these cases either. All right. That's my life hack. What's yours? Well, mine dovetails nicely into yours and sort of often I'll go a more lighthearted look at life, knowing, not knowing, but understanding that, you know, you are socially very conscious and politically aware and active in the social space of media. I was in the car this morning and listening to ABC radio and heard a report and then an interview with a very normal average Australian that really worries me. So this is one to, you know, put your antennas up on people. It was a gentleman who, with his partner, went for a holiday to Fiji, Rowan, and, uh, you know, it's just a nice holiday. They said they had a bit of trouble coming back with, at Nandy Airport for 30 hours, so they were a bit tired and grumpy, but enjoyed their holiday. Came back to Sydney Mascot Airport, is it? The International Airport. Um, and were clearing customs and were sort of pulled aside for a baggage check, and these things happen, of course. And then the customs officer demanded of them, as per border laws in Australia, both of their mobile phones, and demanded that they hand over their passwords. Passports. No, passwords to get into the phone. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. The phones were taken away for half an hour and thoroughly examined. When this chap got his phone back, he went through the phone and his photo gallery had been opened. Um, so just be aware that under stricter border laws, normal tourists and travellers with no red flags, they were told there were no red flags, they were just told they could move on afterwards, standard procedure to have your phone taken away, opened up. Now, he doesn't know whether the information was downloaded. You know, we now have a lot of information on our phones. And I am shocked that border control has the right without suspicion. I mean, if police want to do that, they need a warrant. They need a warrant from the court. But if you travel overseas, however innocently, border control has the right to take your phone away, demand that you unlock it, and then can do whatever they do with it without having any requirement to inform you as to what was done or what was downloaded or kept. It is, to me, an outrageous abuse of power and an impingement on our civil liberties that I would be most... I have nothing particularly to hide, I don't think. 
but I, I, I am disgusted by it, actually. So were, did they ask for or were they given any explanation no, as to why? No, they asked for and were told that uh, the, the Board of Police, or board, the, the Customs Officers... Board of, board of Force. Board of Control have no legal requirement to offer any explanation as to what was done or why. Okay, so what um, what was the? Did you hear the reaction to their story on the radio, either via talkback or who? Oh yeah, uh, sock. Um, now I'm not sure who does the morning program. Is it Virginia Trioli? On it sounds like it. Anyhow, they said they're going to follow it up. She said we'll follow it up, but admitted that the most likely re result would be further stonewalling. I mean, look under. Here's the problem, Rowan. It started, of course, with the attacks of 2001, which was horrendous as they were, opened the door for abuse by power by governments around the world. Because under what is described as um, uh, sort of a wartime emergency, emergency rule, you know, law, the laws can be created without the normal checks and balances in times deemed to be that, you know, times to be critical to the national security, emergency laws can be drafted. And throughout COVID, that abuse has continued. And those normal checks and balances that Parliament provides and the Court of Public Opinion and the media highlighting provides don't exist. And, and we can get laws passed very quickly under emergency orders that um, that we will live with for the rest of our lives that are completely against what we think fair in a, in a democratic free nation that we believe we are. Now, that's, to me, that is an in, that is an intrusion into one's private private affairs that is totally unwarranted. Well, that certainly sounds like. Um... A fair uh, stretch of of those uh, powers, yeah, it does. Uh, all right. Uh, well, we might hear more about that one. It might get uh, followed up. It might not either, um, because who knows with the media now um, what stories they choose to highlight and which stories they don't. All right, there is live hacks for this week. Uh, still, some more nostalgia to come though, and we're talking in a football context. <laughs> Footy flashbacks. All right. Uh, there's been some close games, some thrillers, some epic finishes over the years. I don't know why this one specifically popped into my head, but I, I do remember it well. And um, after we come back, I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you why I probably remember this one. But this one is from round two, 2001. It is Melbourne playing Adelaide over at Football Park. Uh, it's a pretty... Ordinary night over there, as so many night games at Football Park were over the journey. Wet and miserable and a pretty low-scoring game. Uh, Demons just have their noses in front with, uh, well, just a little bit over a minute left to go. Interesting commentary team, you'll observe, too. Bruce McAvaney's there. Uh, big Adelaide representation. We've got Neil Curley on the boundary. Graham Corns 
doing some commentary for Channel 7 as well. And he has some interesting observations to make. But a thrilling finish. Let's see what unfolded. So here's the Crows' last chance. They proved an important decision. Rusciuto at centre wing. Goes long to centre half forward. Melbourne with numbers. Woden belts it away. Little kick by Laddams. Goodman goes for goal. It's in the goal square. It's a, it's a goal. It's unbelievable. It's a goal. Unbelievable. Goodman's put them in front of the deck. And if there's a man who deserves to kick the winning goal, it's Simon Goodwin. He has been tremendous. And watch Scott Welsh on the goal line. Just watch him on the goal line. How did you vote in this match, by the Watch the effort there. To <laughs> Somebody gives you a vote sheet with five seconds to go. Two first half, second half. Thank you. Well, Adams' little kick was important too to Goodwin. There is time for Melbourne. But, gee, their attitude's got to change in a hurry, doesn't it? They kick one point in this quarter. This is an unbelievable victory if they can pull it off here, Adelaide. One last chance for the Demons. They kick the centre-half forward. The ball at the back. Stevens didn't get it away far enough. The kick off the ground. If it goes to the line, you'd fancy the Crows. Well. Who's there? Boy, what a match in the end. I mean, it's been... There is time, Bruce, unfortunately for the Crows, but fortunately for Melbourne, there is time. Well, then, there oh, it is. Oh, Schwartz was wonderful to Leoncelli. Leoncelli's going to kick oh. it. He's done it. Tremendous stuff. That's amazing. That is amazing. Leoncelli's run to the space. It's a classical set player to throw in now. Where was Adelaide's concentration? He's run to the space and under the pressure of Mark Pickley, the desperate pressure. Well, again, if a player deserves to kick a match-winning goal, he does as well because he's been tremendous. Well, it was fantastic yeah. football by Schwartz and Leon Celli. And there is on the time. death, there is Goodwin's time. goal has been uh, completely and utterly overshadowed by Leon Celli's. 11-14 to 12-11. Uze's kicked the centre-half forward. The Demons have won it. It's a magnificent victory for, for, for Melbourne, but you look across the ground. Crows players on their haunches, hands in their heads. Head in their hands, should I say. And the Melbourne players jubilant. Look at them jumping over each other in the centre. We'll get a shot of that in a minute. Congregating into the centre. Well, that the Melbourne... Do they steal it? I'll tell you what they do. They certainly remind all football teams, but Adelaide in particular, when there's 15 seconds to go, you don't leave a man standing on his own. I mean, Liam Trelly must have thought all of his Christmas has come at once. It's one of the poorest pieces of defensive play. It's amazing. It's, it, it defies... It doesn't defy description. You know what it defies? It defies the notion that players are responsible in closing stages of football. Like, we sort of hope as fans, oh, they're drilled, they know where to stand. They they had no idea what they were doing. Well, they were they were ball-watching. And uh, hats off, too, to our, our former SEN colleague, uh, Theo X, <laughs> or the Ox, because uh, that was a massive belt from him out of the ruck contest. Uh, it looks like a bit of a... A set play, cool finish from Lancelli, and just four seconds left on the clock um, after the goal umpire gave the all clear. So 
uh, game set and match and a fairly subdued uh, Graham Corns <laughs> afterwards. Uh, I, I've got to say, Fanny, my, my big memory of this is um, I remember doing, um, I think, the Sunday preview the next day on 3AW and they played the end of the call on 5AA. Now, 5AA, you might remember, a pretty notoriously one-sided call oh, mate. of the Adelaide games. And we're talking about uh, Rowie, Stephen Rowe on there. KG, I think, was on there as well. So this is how that say, and I'll try and do it as best I can. I kid you not, this is exactly how that last passage of play was called on 5AA, and it went something like this. The throw in now, Schwartz to Lee and Shelley. Oh, no. <laughs> that says it all. <laughs> well, it's certainly, uh, the, what about the, is that the most subdued reaction to a, a game-winning goal you've ever heard? You could have heard a pin drop. <laughs> anyway, I thought it was worth uh, wheeling out again. Uh, uh, great uh, win for the Demons in 2001. All right, what do you got for us? Okay, I, I think I think it's a first. The first game, the first time we've had a win involving this side on footy flashbacks. I think I've also broken a sort of unwritten convention between the two of us that we don't highlight heartbreaks for each other's teams. I think oh, we've no. steered mainly clear of that. Um, look, this comes from a final series in which... Now, has this happened before? It may have happened before. It probably has back in the days of low scoring, but you're pretty unlucky to lose two key games by a point. Oh, Roll tape. 15-9 to 15-11. Been playing over 30 minutes in this last quarter. There's been plenty of time on Denham to bring him back in. What a brave comeback by the Bombers. Kick the centre wing. High leap, not paid to Blumfield. And again, Voss with Brisbane just holding the ball up. So the seconds are ticking away. I think it's fair to say next goal wins. 15-11 to 5-9. Centre wing, Lappin, McRae. McRae's been important, a bounce. He could almost reach the goal square. Again, goes short. Lynch can't take it. White, can he do something? Back, McRae bangs, and he kicks out of bounds on the fall. So Essendon still with an opportunity. They have a chance here. Under a minute now, Bruce, left in the game. You just see the pressure gets to uh, McRae then. He had more time than he thought. He was been able to settle and get himself balanced, but brought it under his boot quickly, turns the ball over. Barry Young to take it away from the back pocket. He, and he takes a risk, kicks it into a, a situation where it can be won by either side, and it's won by the Bears. Lambert pumps it back to within scoring distance. It goes to the back. The race on now. Cockatoo Collins must gather. Clean possession important. It's a good kick. It's taken out here by McCurry, not paid. Take it away by Denham. They must get two clean possessions. Denham's kick is good. It's taken down here by Ola Renshaw. Half a minute left. Ola Renshaw. There's a player on his own at half forward, and it's been marked. This is Matthew Lloyd. Cover yourself in glory, son. He kicks to the square. They get back. No mark. Wanganeen! He's hit the post. It's a point of difference. And we've got 17 seconds. 
seconds left. <laughs> this is the most unbelievable climax to a game of footy we've seen for many, many years. Many, many years. No extra time, remember. There can be no draw here. I mean, there will be extra time. There can be no draw. So appoint the margin. Clark, the target. Did he mark it? No, it's out of play. 15, 11 to 15, 10. Remember, if the Bombers lose and either Geelong or Hawthorne are successful, they're out of the finals. Barnard pushes forward. Hart, the Bears have won! It was a classic. Yeah, thanks a lot for that. Um, well, yeah, I can uh, I can elaborate on this one a bit. I was there. I was in the press box. I near this is true. I nearly got into a punch up with a Brisbane racing writer who spent the <laughs> entire game barracking his lungs out because, uh, well, that was they just didn't have a protocol about it up there, and they were all, all a bit more laid back about everything. Um, Gavin Wanganeen, of course, uh, the story goes, stood in a pothole in the goal square as he went to snap that winning goal um, under a fair bit of heat, it must be said. The two one-point results, of course, a fortnight later after bouncing back and winning the semi against West Coast, uh, it would be Plugger Lockett who ended Essendon's season after the siren, and uh, I was present for that one too. I'll tell you what, I racked up some frequent fly points that final series finding, and this is how long ago it was. I was working for the Sunday Age, which we had our own staff then, and uh, I flew up for several finals games, and so did someone from the Daily Age and put up at decent hotels, et cetera, et cetera. There was a bit of money going around then, but that weekend I went up to the Gabba for that game we just heard on the Friday night, I went from there to the SCG for Saturday night's elimination final between uh, Sydney and Hawthorne, which was also decided by a kick. Um, And then back to the MCG for the Sunday game, which was North Melbourne and Geelong. Um, But yeah, uh, wow. And the start of a pretty good era for Brisbane too. There's some uh, pretty good players in that lineup, but the Brisbane Bears uh, racking up a final amid much excitement. They, of course, would go on to a preliminary final against North Melbourne, and uh, Essendon would lose the preliminary final to Sydney. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it it is sort of lost in the sands of time, but the notion that Brisbane Bears were misfits, and it wasn't until they became Brisbane Lions that they became a proper football team is not true. That was just a moment in time. They could have been, they could have kept being called the Bears. They were destined for glory after this final series. I mean, they beat Carlton by almost 100 points in this final series. And, of course, they had so many great players that would go on to be um, club champions and premiership players that, yeah, the, the Brisbane Bears did finish on a high, didn't they? Absolutely, they did, uh, of course, to become the Brisbane Lions at the conclusion of this season. The jumper changed and et cetera, et cetera. The rest is history. Uh, this podcast is history too, or well, this episode yep. of it is. Thanks for joining us. Uh, been a pleasure. We'll be back uh, next week with all your usual segments. Uh, don't forget to... Uh, Well, you can either support us via the uh, supporter page, wherever you're listening to this uh, podcast via ACAST, uh, 
or become a Footyology patron uh, at one of the many links available on the Footyology website, footyology.com.au through Patreon, a great supporter of independent media operations. And you can become an official Footyology patron for just $7 Australian per month. And uh, let me tell you that uh, money will be put to very good use indeed because costs a bit to keep this operation going. Let me tell you as a man who pays the bills. Uh, Anyway, appreciate your company. We'll be back next week with a whole lot more. Uh, We'll catch you then. Bye.